0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland and thank you so much for joining me here today. This episode is a little different to others in the sense that a few months ago as I was developing the eating disorders in sport online course I had the opportunity to speak to a number of experts speaking in their specialist area and what I did was I formulated these into a series of interviews which I then embedded into the eating disorders in sport online course Now one of the all of them are amazing but one of them in particular I found incredibly rich in terms of how we can translate research into practice and the insights and wisdoms that professor Paula Quattrimoni shared with me and Paula being the incredibly generous person she is gave me permission to turn this into a podcast so consider this your little bit of a sneaky peek into what you can find in the eating disorders in sport online course and and uh, professor Quattrimoni also shares with us just so much depth in terms of her knowledge and insights into uh, how we can understand the way athletes are feeling and behaving around food, eating and their bodies, particularly when it comes to sporting performance and pursuing the body ideal, I guess you would say, and how that narrative is woven all through sport and athletic endeavours. So a little bit about Paula. Paula is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Health Sciences in the College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, Sargent College at Boston University. So uh, Paula works both with undergraduate and graduate students in the classroom and through mentored research opportunities. She's a very, very active media spokesperson and is a senior consultant to Walden Behavioral Care. So she's engaged in clinical practice and research on treatment of eating disorders and is creator of the Walden Goals Program, an intensive outpatient treatment program for competitive athletes with eating disorders. So as you can hear, Paula is really uniquely positioned to be speaking about the intersection of research and then clinical practice. And certainly a lot of her research has deeply informed a lot of our work as dietitians at the coalface working with athletes. I know how highly regarded Paula is amongst our colleagues, especially those of us that are sports dietitians. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. A little bit more about the Eating Disorders in Sport online course. So alongside Paula's interview, I had the opportunity to also interview other dietitians, Robin Noling, Meg Shreer, Lauren Anton and Nikki Jaycock, who all provided incredible, um, information and depth in their specialist areas as well. And the other person I was really interested to speak with was Dr. Scott Griffiths, who is a Melbourne based research psychologist and specialist, particularly in men's body image and eating disorders. So, um, everybody's interview was just so interesting and added such an array of, um, you know, interest to, the, to this particular online course, so I hope you really enjoy it. So the course is comprised of about 20 hours worth of content, including the interviews, and it takes a dive from uh, probably what could be, be regarded as maybe a little bit of the dry area of diagnosis. Um, and we really dig into some of the complexity of working with athletes, particularly when they start to struggle with their relationship with food eating and their bodies so I co- um, co-contributed to this course with Shane Jeffrey from River Oak Health and we also had the wonderful generous support of the Sports Dietitians Association which, um, which really supported us to bring these live workshops to Melbourne and then Brisbane and just recently in Sydney so for those of you that are listening that attended those live workshops thank you so much for your support it was wonderful to connect and as you know Kim Unity is everything when we are uh, wanting to work together in supporting athletes in these kind of complex areas of working. So thank you all so much for your support in getting these courses off the ground and in in providing such generous feedback as well. So you can find this online course and more at The Mindful Dietitian, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com. It's so wonderful to see so many of you in our Facebook group. You can just search under The Mindful Dietitian. It is a closed group specifically for health professionals who are interested in health at every size, mindfulness-based practice, weight-inclusive care, uh, body image, eating disorders, and everything in between. So it's so wonderful to see you there. Thank you so much for all your support of me and The Mindful Dietitian. Thanks for being here. I hope you've got your drink of choice ready to go as we dive in to this particular episode with Professor Paula Quattrimoni. It is an enormous pleasure today that I am speaking to Paula Quattrimoni, who is an incredible academic from Boston University in Massachusetts. Um, I've known of Paula's work for quite a number of years now, and uh, I think it would be not an overestimation for me to say that, um, Paula, your work has just been incredibly formative to many of us sports dietitians who are also doing work in eating disorders. So the first thing I wanted to say is just thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, I'm so grateful for your work.
1: Thank you. It is a total pleasure and quite an honor to be talking with you. I really appreciate being included in this great piece of work you're doing
0: yeah thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate that um so Paula, a lot of your work in eating disorders and athletes has really been centered around research and gathering um, data which helps us understand um, not only the athletes' experience but also um, broad, you know getting some broader perspectives on how we can best support athletes and and broader networks to address eating disorders in sport so Do you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, how how did you kind of get involved in research in the first place?
1: Well, I got involved in research really as an undergraduate in my dietetics program and had an amazing faculty mentor who got me very excited about his research. And that led me to a master's degree. And after my dietetic internship, I knew I wanted to do doctoral work. So after becoming a dietitian, I trained as an epidemiologist at the doctoral level. And so the research culture really got ingrained through big population-based epidemiology. I worked on the Framingham Heart Study for over 20 years and continued to collaborate there. Um, But with regards to the the research related to eating disorders in sport, that really grew out of clinical practice that I started at Boston University. And the researcher in me was committed to tracking data on the patients that I was treating. I call them patients, but they were college students, the clients, the athletes, student athletes I was treating. Um, But again, coming at it from a research perspective, I just knew that that tracking the data and the outcomes and logging what I was doing was gonna be important. And so the first paper that I published in this realm was simply about the nutrition consult services we built for student athletes at Boston University, and I showed the first two years of the service: who was referred to me, who walked through the door on their own, um, what their diagnostic criteria were, um, what services I provided for them, and then the basic, you know, information in terms of the sports and their, um, you know, what the, uh, their assessment of um, their risk in terms of clinical or subclinical eating disorders and diagnoses if they were appropriate, but also things like their entry weight and if there was weight restoration or if there was, again, resolution of the symptoms of binge eating or um, bulimia or whatnot. And I published that really around the model of the clinical practice we built in the university setting because at the time, there were not many dietitians in universities employed within athletics to be doing that kind of work, and so I really thought of it as this is a way to create jobs um, to get dietitians into both sports medicine and athletic departments at universities, because basically, uh, the paper was like a Pandora's box. It showed what we you know what was there that was untapped, unaddressed. and we definitely proved if you build it, they will come in terms of establishing the service because before long, student-athletes were self-referring or they were bringing their teammates because once the dietitian was there and was visible and was proven to be helping student-athletes change their lives for the better and, and you know be rid of the distress of the eating disorder or the disordered eating behaviors where it spread like wildfire. So that, again, I would not call that research. In fact, it did not have IRB approval because it was just data tracked from clinical practice, but it was publishable. Um, data, and that was the beginning um, of what now I'm trying to build more of a research program around. Again, using my skills as an epidemiologist, um, and through building bigger partnerships and collaborations, um, like with Walden Behavioral Care, where I do consulting work there in eating disorder treatment program that I've collaborated with, A, to build um, an athlete-specific treatment program, but B, as a research partner, to have access to the data on all of the patients and clients they've treated over the years. So it gives us the opportunity not only to look backwards retrospectively at treatment outcomes, but as we start new programs like the Walden Goals program or even within our our free-to-be program, which is a binge-eating treatment program, how we can look prospectively at treatment outcomes if we start asking research questions from day one. So it's really a combination of the clinical practice, but the research mindset, I think, is one of the things that's allowed me to get this far and to be able to compete for grants and to be able to publish the work in peer-reviewed journals and, of course, having access to university students and Graduate students or dietetic interns who want to get involved in the work it 's the perfect setting for this work to be done
0: yeah absolutely and and again, we are just so grateful for that work because you have such a um, a rich skill set which has you know um, uh, allowed you to be able to bring this data into our into the forefronts of our minds to be able to use that as a um, um, supportive supportive way to really elevate the role of the dietitian and to, and in some ways, and I know that, um, and, you know, not everybody might have this experience, but I think there's this shared idea of, you know, where we have to be proving ourselves and have to be really, um, you know, um, making sure that we're at the forefront of, of, of being viewed as being a really integral part of the, of the, uh, health team. And part of that is, is inc- incredibly helpful in terms of eating disorders prevention and early intervention as well, which is, you know, obviously my great passion area and having your research has been so useful in being able to really support the role of the dietitian and, and, and also um, to make it really clear that, um, you know, our uh, the need for us to upskill, you know, in, 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 in eating behavior, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's that's very true in terms of, because we do have to be on the forefront of our own practice. And so evidence-based practice really is, is the goal that we're after. And there's not always the research available to guide that. And so sometimes it is, you know, best practices from our clinical experience, but By putting that into the literature, that's how we can come together as a profession and learn from each other what are the best practices or what worked in that setting, what might work in my setting. And that's why it's so important to get these success stories or even there's not always a success or sometimes it's a challenge or an obstacle that we weren't aware of that can then inform the next iteration of what Mm -hmm. someone might do in practice. It's as important to communicate those. And certainly I think dietitians do a very good job of doing that through conferences and you know, maybe our specialty working groups, but I think, you know, really getting it into the peer reviewed literature where it's on a bigger stage and other professions can also be reading our peer reviewed literature, whereas they might not be attending our conferences or mm-hmm. again, seeing the role of the dietitian within our own circle versus on a much more collaborative and a more national or international scale. So I, I think, you know, contributing to the research really helps in that regard. And it does, it, it elevates, what we bring to the table and it elevates the unique role we serve on the team. And, and it just, um, gives a tremendous amount of, you know, autonomy, you know, to the dietitian to really be in that, in that leadership role. And, you know, I also felt like that very first paper that I published, any dietitian could walk into, you know, a university or an athletic director and say, look at this evidence. Like this is, you know, how, a." program could be built this is how an interdisciplinary service could function and this is the difference in terms of the number of student athletes who could be identified or identified at risk or referred for treatment you know even if treatment is not being provided on campus just that identification the triaging the referral finding out who are referral networks and you know as opposed to not screening at all and pretending Mm -hmm. like it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and so I think you know even if if the, if the dietitian's role is more with nutrition education and awareness building and prevention, that's still a phenomenal service that most colleges and universities don't have. So you yeah. can either go to the tip of the iceberg or you can back it up and go down many, many layers. Um, but there's, you know, depending on what types of resources are there to really put all of that into place.
0: Yeah, definitely. And us being upskilled in knowing those early warning signs and in providing education not only to the athletes, but then also to the support team. And so everybody knows what to do, when, how, and who to talk to. Um, that, a lot of time, absolutely. To have those processes in place and those communication channels really locked down is a really um it can be a really kind of powerful part of what we do is to you know not necessarily be always the one-on-one or, or quote-unquote you know nutrition education but also being facilitators um Absolutely. in a much broader way
1: right and getting protocols in place because we're not always going to be in our jobs and there's going to be the next person who comes along and part of establishing best practices is documenting the protocol so that it's foolproof and anybody can pick it up and know what to do um especially when there's you know, really dire circumstances and people need attention and treatment and just even building a referral base and helping non-dieticians figure out how do you find a dietitian with the proper sports nutrition and eating disorder expertise that not all RDs are trained the same, um, for example. And so that is really valuable information that a lot of health educators or athletic trainers or, you know, sports medicine doctors don't necessarily know how to go about that and that's where we can be really instrumental and it helps to promote our colleagues because we connect our colleagues to the work
0: yeah definitely when we're you know we're we're kind of straddling a couple of worlds you know there's the sports nutrition Mm -hmm. world and then there's the eating disorders world and actually having these two specialities they they do cross over of course in so many different ways but it also makes things um more complex in, in lots of ways too. There's lots of more communication channels. There's lots more work to be done.
1: <laughs> yes, because you know, and that's, that's the thing. If, if a student athlete is referred to a provider, who's not the best provider in terms of the best fit for that person who doesn't understand their sport identity or who doesn't understand, you know, maybe they know sports, but they don't know eating disorders. You know, those are the, the interactions that can end after one or two visits. And then there's the perception that well, we sent the athlete for treatment and didn't work or, you know, without understanding really the nuances of how important those first few interactions are going to be to solidify that relationship that's really truly going to be therapeutic. And there's so many obstacles and barriers to treatment in eating disorders in general. I would say they are so magnified in the student athlete situation. And the last thing we need is that type of an interaction that turns somebody away from treatment or where the whole athletics staff and everybody believes treatment doesn't work because of, you know, a bad referral. And so how important it is that the dieticians receiving these, you know, athletes with eating disorders really are well-trained and well-informed of how to assess and how to know, you know, that they're capable of treating up until a certain point or when the athlete might need a higher level of care and really handling that very strategically because, um Otherwise, it becomes a very easy excuse to say, you know, treatment didn't work, right? And so we have to make sure that the right providers are there receiving the student athletes and are trained and really know how to manage that case. It's critical.
0: Yeah, definitely. And of course, understanding that, you know, none of the providers are perfect and there's no kind of perfect um, way to present um, and that things, things get kind of messy, but um, being, being appropriately um, aware of limitations and, um, and our own Um, scope of practice and things like that is Mm -hmm. just something for us to keep in mind that we don't need to freak out if things get a little messy but but to know how to get our own support and to get appropriate support for our athlete in a a timely way is really is really critical
1: absolutely
0: so do you mind us backing up just a little because you Mm -hmm. raised something really important um which is barriers, you know, bar- barriers to help seeking, I guess, for, for whether it's for athletes or whether it's for, for kind of um, within the sporting culture, I guess, for individuals or groups or um, however we might think about it. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and, and you know, if you're aware of any kind of literature around, around that and what, what we can learn from that.
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of literature. Um I think barriers to treatment and eating disorder care in general is in the literature, specifically around adolescence. Um, there's a little bit of literature on barriers in athletes. I've absolutely seen it in clinical practice. We've absolutely seen it in our athlete practice at Walden. Most of the athletes who have treated in the Walden goals program for a- competitive athletes most of them have never been in treatment before even though they've been suffering with eating disorder and disordered eating symptoms for five years or more oh my gosh so yeah yeah so there's a you know in addition to the traditional barriers to treatment like again access to treatment facilities or appropriate levels of care insurance barriers the general stigma of i don't want my parents to know so it has to be a secret those are regular barriers right But in the athlete community, there's all of this whole other level of confidentiality and not wanting to disclose it within the athlete community in terms of being afraid of being perceived as weak and not strong and competitive or being sick and not able to compete and perform. But there's, you know, you think of the collegiate athlete who's on scholarship. I mean, their whole... Education is riding on their student athlete identity and their ability to train and compete so there's a tremendous amount of fear and of course you're talking about 18, 19 year old undergraduates so many of them might be living very far away from home and so their support networks are not there helping to prompt them maybe to get into treatment like an adolescent living in under their parents roof might be for example. So it's a lot easier to fly under the radar screen and to get really, 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 really sick before somebody notices. Um, there's, you know, you talk about the male athlete and then there's the whole stigma of men don't get eating disorders. That's a woman's disease. I mean, you could say that about athletes in general. A lot of people don't think athletes get eating disorders. They think athletes are invincible. I mean, sometimes when I talk about my work, people look at me astonished and they say, athletes get eating disorders? Like mm-hmm. they have. They have no idea. So there's so much lack of awareness, misperception, stereotypes, and stigma around who gets an eating disorder, or even if an athlete gets an eating disorder, there is a lot of stereotype that it's only the runners and the swimmers or the figure skaters or or somebody has to look really emaciated. So they're missing 90% of who's really struggling in silence, the people who are binge eating, the people who are binging and purging, the people who are compulsively exercising and you know, monitoring their weight 12 times a day. I mean, all of that subclinical or, you know, invisible psychopathology is not on the radar screen. And, And even some of the things that an untrained eye might, you know, somebody outside of athletics might say, well, that's a little excessive. Within athletics, some of those behaviors are considered completely normal and they're even endorsed by coaches or trainers. So it's really, really, really difficult to identify it. So that's putting the onus to come forward for treatment on the person who's struggling mm. because it's such a secret so much within that environment. And so, again, from the life stage and the life skills that, uh, you know, I'm talking about collegiate athletes, but imagine the high school athlete or the middle school athlete. They don't have the skill set to come forward and and to even recognize maybe that they're suffering because a lot of athletes with eating disorders say that it took them a really long time till they they realized that it wasn't just something about them that was broken or something about them like to realize it's a more universal thing that this happens to athletes that this happens to other people too and because it's so private and secretive that until there's some communication about it or they've read something or another athlete has spoken about it or written a book about it. And then they start to say, wow, that happened to me too. Those are the things that help people come forward for treatment. And when they realize that there is something that they're suffering with and that there is treatment available and something that could help them. So the barriers to treatment are, I, I truly have seen it in my career very much magnified and, the odds are against the student athlete to come forward for treatment. And then when they do come for treatment, they may find that it, the treatment does not understand their sport or they're told they can't continue to exercise or train. And then there's the fear of that all being taken away from them and losing their spot on the team and all the reasons why they can't go into treatment and take a break from the sport that has defined their whole life. So the, I mean, we could talk for hours just on that topic alone. There's really a lot to say on it, but there's a whole lot more we need to understand. But the research is really just in its infancy and just emerging.
0: Yeah, well, I think that you what you did there so beautifully is you really summarized, um, you know, from uh, you know from the, the the literature that we do have in the general population, and then um, really allowed us a beautiful insight into how this gets magnified through the lens of. Um, the athletic um, view of life and, and the athlete vision of, of, of life and, um, and how so many different factors come into play.
1: Yeah, and from the whole community, not just yes. from the athlete's perspective, mm-hmm. but from the parents who, you know, again, are seeing the athlete train double sessions and work harder and they're praising the athlete or, you know, someone in the athlete community whether it's teammates or coaches praising the weight loss, like that is fuel for the eating disorder and it's reinforcement that this is all for the sake of performance and there's nothing wrong here. And I will do it because I have to, when I'm in season and when season's over, I can stop or when I get to a certain weight, I can stop. But the problem is they get to that weight and they think, what would happen if I went a little bit further? And then they get to that weight and they go, what would happen if I went a little bit further? Because they, you know, especially I was reading a paper just before this call too. There was a, they were talking about, especially when performance is not suffering, that coaches and athletic trainers, that people in the sport environment, are not likely to notice anything that seems eating or exercise disordered, and you know, but when performance starts to decline, or certainly when the athlete gets injured, that tends to be when the red flags are uncovered. But that's also when the athlete feels even more desperate to go further and further with those behaviors because now they're injured or now they're not performing because the eating disorder is catching up with them. And so that might be the time when people in, you know, coaches in the sport environment start to recognize the warning flags, but the athlete is now even more entrenched in it and more desperate. So it's just not a good place to begin the conversation um, about treatment and intervention, because all of those missed opportunities were actually oftentimes rewarded and received accolades. And it's, you, you can't flip the switch that quickly on the athlete who's like, wait a minute, you're revering me a month ago, and now you're sending me to treatment. Mm-hmm. So it's like a to to the system, because there's almost like a 180 degree switch.
0: Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. of their fears are actually realised, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they do get, you know, not, not only through injury, but sometimes they will get, you know, um, pulled from the team or sidelined or their, you know, exercise will get reduced or they will be asked to eat more or, you know, a lot of those, the fears that actually stop them wanting to reach out in the first place actually do get realised, which is a real, um, it's it's not so much a conundrum, it, it's more a, a natural deep challenge for everybody involved. Like it's not like we have to make a decision so much. It's more like we recognize that you're in pain. We recognize that this is really hard and we also need to help you get back either get back into sport or get back into life.
1: But the more beautiful thing would be if we could recognize it sooner before it gets to that point. And that's that's the problem that, um, you know, the, I mean, we know that early intervention, um, you know, is the key. And the problem is early in the eating disorder, the performance does not necessarily suffer. Although the athlete's suffering psychologically, emotionally, you know, all the inner turmoil and the anxiety that goes with that, but the outward performance doesn't suffer, but it absolutely does eventually. And that's the problem that delays early intervention and early recognition, which makes it so much harder to treat these cases where the athletes then become so sick or they're on the verge of losing their sport altogether because they're so malnourished and so compromised or injured, right? They're now taking them out of the game. And that's why when I give these talks, oftentimes I call, talk about eating disorders and sport, um, success, a key for success or sabotage. Because what starts out as very well intentioned to improve my performance and change my body composition, be faster, stronger, more muscular, leaner, whatever, is what actually sabotages the exact thing the athlete was pursuing, whether it's Olympic glory or, you know, that collegiate scholarship, because they have, you know, damaged their body. It's just, the eating disorder has wreaked so much havoc. Um, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's the problem. If, if coaches, athletic trainers, parents, athletes don't realize and intervene on the early warning signs and let it get to that point, it just has devastating consequences for everyone involved. hmm
0: and if we're to look even broader than that, so you kind of named the the individual and then the kind of the first circle out type of um, those type of constructs. But then if we're to look further out, we're, we're to look at sporting culture and the accolades mm-hmm. and the pride and the ego and the scholarships and the, and everything that goes around, um, yeah. you know, what, what a successful, a quote unquote successful athlete, what they look like, how they perform, how they eat, how they move. That yeah now 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 we're getting into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> right,
1: because then you could talk at the level of youth sports and when athletes are you know youths are told to specialize in a sport and be de- invited to olympic development camps and all these special opportunities and they're chasing those dreams at very very early ages mm-hmm. and that does speak to the culture but it also speaks to the I mean one of the things that um, Ron Thompson was saying in his article is about you know a lot of the research has been done at collegiate and elite Athlete levels where those athletes have access to coaches, athletic trainers, sports medicine doctors, sports psychologists that at least have some training and awareness. But at the youth sport level, there's none of that. Mm. And so, you know, at even younger and younger ages, and you know, with parents buying into it, and you know, all the money that's poured into it, you know, where is the nutrition prevention? I mean, I remember when my own daughter was playing club sport and her club had a wonderful night for parents on how to help your child get a college scholarship and be recruited. And I'm thinking, why are they not having a night about parents how to feed your young Mm athlete and about proper nutrition and sleep and hydration? Like, you know, they put resources into bringing in speakers about how to get your you know, middle school or early high school are recruited for college sports. Oh, wow. When are we ever talking about health and wellness and proper training and injury prevention and nutrition and how to properly fuel? And uh, it's there's so many missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. But you're right, the culture and moving out from that circle, um, you know, to the level of policy, to the level of, you know, um, what's, you know, what is required within, you know, athletic departments or what kind of coaching education to be a coach? Should you be required by, you know, the state licensing associations to have a basic course on nutrition that includes eating disorder awareness, like professional education requirement? There's a lot that could be done to really get more education and awareness building.
0: Yeah, oh definitely. Goodness, there's yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, that's for sure. So just taking a tiny step backwards, you you um, mentioned that um, you know, your that your observation is that, you know, the the teen athlete or the youth athlete, you know, the research around those kind of age groups are really missing. So um what else are we missing? Because my kind of, my understanding of the literature and the research is that there's a lot of research among certain sports or, you know, within certain athletes, and there's a whole bunch of stuff missing. So I'm curious to know, you know, what's your observation?
1: Yeah, I I agree with that, your take on the literature. I think there is um, a lot of research predominantly on female athletes, um, athletes in what have traditionally been called either the lean sports or the weight-sensitive sports, like things that are tied to weight classes, like wrestling and crew, for example. Um, and then the aesthetic sports and sports where there's a judging component, like figure skating, gymnastics, for example. Um, but you know, we, we can't take those findings and then apply them to eating disorders that I see all the time in basketball, you know, women's basketball, women's lacrosse, women's tennis, you know, there's even debate, is tennis a lean sport or a non-lean sport? Well, you know, you could, there's a the whole issue about, um, uniforms and how they emphasize your body. So you could argue that tennis skirts and tight fitting tennis outfits are no different than a swimmer or a diver's speedo, for example, or, you know, the kits that the track and cross country runners are, are wearing that show off, you know, um, you know, every shape and form of your body. So there's, but I mean, and there's also tends to be an overemphasis on the most specific diagnostic predominantly anorexia with regards to eating disorders in sport. There's less about bulimia. There's less about binge eating. And I can tell you again, in the data that I'm working on from the first 20 patients we've treated in our athlete program at Walden, the most common diagnosis is OSFED, the other specified feeding and eating disorder. So they're not falling into these neat little packages where people can see it with their naked eye and say, there's an eating disorder. I must intervene so so much of it flies under the radar screen and again if we're not one of the other things and I'll come back to the role of the dietitian be, because so much of the eating disorder research and literature it's coming from either the medical model and again for like medical treatment and medical metabolic complications of refeeding syndrome and anorexia in hospitalized patients or it's coming from the psychology literature of psychosocial factors or Developing and validating screening tools and psychometric assessments, but the research that involves nutrition is a tiny, tiny piece of the research on eating disorders in general, let alone eating disorders in athletes. And so we do have a lot of studies on who's vulnerable, who's at risk, what are some of the prevalent, like what's the prevalence of eating disorders in NCAA collegiate athletes? That study's been done, right? And, and we know now, there's been more qualitative research about athletes' lived experiences. We're starting to hear a little bit about male athletes and what they're experiencing stigma and barriers for treatment. And, you know, we're starting to know a little bit about, um, you know, prevention and what might work in prevention, the great work from like Carolyn Becker and Tiffany Stewart around peer-led interventions, the Female Athlete Body Project. But what we, still, there's a whole lot of untapped, populations that haven't been looked at whether it's by sports or by sex or we could talk about male athletes we could also talk about transgender athletes um you know competing after sex change operations or competing um at at all different levels and the changes with their bodies as they go through um through all of that but there's very very little on treatment outcomes Mm -hmm. i would i mean basically even uh, i was looking in the literature for randomized clinical trials on treatment of eating disorders in general, not in athletes, but in general. And there were maybe two or three abstracts I got so excited about till I realized that they were just protocols for trials that are currently underway. So the findings are not out yet, but the Mm -hmm. protocols have been published, which is great, but we don't have outcomes and findings yet. And, And within the athlete literature, there's nothing on treatment. And, Where some of the treatment literature exists in eating disorders, it's mostly medical management or psychotherapy based. There's not a whole lot that helps us as dietitians about what is our role? What is the dietitian's influence? What are the outcomes the dietitians are making a difference on? How do I, as a young dietitian in this field, know what's the best practices from other eating disorder dietitians? Because they did this, this was their role in that clinical trial that had that outcome. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist for so is that us. So is that a call to action, Paula? That is a call to action. <laughs> I'm, you know, um, I am actively trying to, you know, write grants and get some funding. I wrote a nice grant to the National Eating Disorders Association last year. I unfortunately didn't get funded, but I'm continuing to try and collaborate with people like Tiffany Stewart. She's really excited about the work we're doing at Walden. So to have, you know, again, her expertise on the psych side of the research with mine on the nutrition side, I think we could do some great things together. We have to collaborate, um, but we have to even get our case studies into the literature Mm. because in the absence of well-powered research, whether it's retrospective research, you know, chart reviews and showing outcomes that way, or whether it's prospective research or whether it's a a randomized clinical trial, those take tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. But we don't have to wait for that. We can still get our best practices into the literature from our clinical experience and write up, and that's the thing I've been really committed to in the last couple of years is writing up these patient case studies to, um, you know, to show the role of the dietitian and to show the outcomes that we can achieve and to empower other dietitians of what we can measure and that we should be using validated tools. And here are the tools I use, and maybe they'd be useful in your setting, or maybe you've identified other tools um Tiffany Stewart has suggested some great tools to us that we're now using in our practice at Walden and we have data and you know we're it's another paper that I'm working on right now because we we really do have to join the conversation and we have yeah. to help our profession and by doing that we're helping our clients who are the athletes.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So in you know all of us are you know highly committed to the the health and well-being and and performance of the athletes that we work with. And if we can at the same time really um, elevate our roles as dietitians, it means that we're more likely to continue to be funded in our positions. We're more likely to have more hours and to have more um, capability and and breadth and reach within the health team so that we can do more good work. Because I find it really interesting when I hear the way other professionals from a variety of different settings speak about dieticians and i think gosh you've you've got no idea what we do (laughs) like you know i i i often i often use the the phrase uh, more than a more than a meal plan like you know yeah
1: Yeah. i mean and, and that's the thing we are truly functioning as case managers and we are the holders of the data and we have the opportunity to go to the literature you know we are trained to read the literature we're trained to you know, find those assessment tools and see if they've been validated. And you know, the more we can do in terms of, of elevating our credentials, getting the master's degree, um, you know, doing you know more research, training, or it, in stimulating our own critical thinking and joining the conversation that way, it, it helps to advance our field. And and you know, there are there is a tremendous misperception about the role of the dietitian, and as a result, we are un underfunded, we are doing far more work than we're being paid for, and it's contributing to burnout professionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the more we are willing to do that, the harder we're making it for ourselves. Whereas, you know, the kind of work I was talking about publishing the model of what we did at Boston University, you know, I think about the dietitian who's consulting for XYZ University, and they're paying her you know one day a week eight hours a week to be the sports dietitian for a whole university she should be able to take that paper and walk into her athletic director and say this is a model we could aspire to this is how we could do it these are the outcomes i could achieve for this athletics department like they don't even you know a lot of people in those administrative positions don't even know what they need but we can walk in and tell them and when we have data and outcomes we're equipped with the uh, you know, they, they can't refute the data to say, wow, this was achieved by this level of, of input. And and that's what helps to, you know, increase the dietitian's role and to actually build a program rather than have an external consultant mm-hmm. who can barely scratch the surface of the amount of need. Um, that's, that's truly there if, if um, you know, we want to open our eyes and look at it and address it.
0: So I wonder if, um, I guess I'm hoping that, um, you know, this has left quite a few sports dietitians maybe thinking about how they can start to track um, the, the the data that they're gathering, um, can start to um, maybe look at the different tools that we can use and different assessment processes um, and how we can use that data to not only further Um, to not only further the good that we're aiming to do with athletes, but also to contribute back to the profession, which ultimately kind of helps everybody. So that sounds like a nice, I'm actually feeling really inspired and thinking this is not normally something that inspires me at all.
1: (laughs) It's very, it is really exciting. Um, And I think it is what helps us to move up the ladder of leadership in our professions and that in itself is exciting. And you know, I would again, and really encourage people to be collaborative, to reach out to people. Don't hesitate to say, you know, when you meet someone at a conference, you know, I've seen your work or I've seen you speak is, you know, can I have coffee with you? Can I pick your brain? Can we share some resources? You know, um, it's, it's really the way, because none of us can do this work alone. And it's really strength in numbers and, just different perspectives that people bring. Even if it's two dietitians, they usually have some different training or different skill sets that they bring to the table. But when we truly cross disciplines, that there's even, you know, more opportunity for strength. So um, we can't sit and wait for the opportunity to knock on our door. We really have to be the active agents of change, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, being um, active, deliberate, um, leadership, purposeful, purposeful um, collaborative,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and on the front foot of prevention and early intervention.
1: Absolutely. And and just constantly reading and just mm. staying on top of the emerging literature. It's And I don't mean, you know, keeping up with the Twitter feeds. Although, I mean, I know a lot of dietitians, especially those in private practice, that Social media presence is super important for their practice, but don't forget to really go to the primary sources of the journals and to be on PubMed. And even if it's within a narrowly defined focus, you know, you don't, we don't have to know everything about everything in our field, but once you've established your niche, you do really need to keep up with it and know, you know the emerging research because this research is gonna emerge fast and furious. At least that's my hope because there's so much work that needs to be done it has to start emerging. And I think with more resources going towards mental health for athletes, eating disorders has to be part of that conversation. And so there's going to be more and more emerging again, whether that's through athletes telling their own lived experiences, qualitative research, you know, clinical trials, case control studies, case reports, case series, this is going to, I mean, already the the literature is um, growing at a a very fast pace. So Mm -hmm. it's a very exciting time to be working in this niche. So make sure that we're either leading the way or really holding on tight because the ride is going to get, you know, it's going to escalate really fast. And so it's a place that we really want to keep our hands tied to the science.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely oh that's awesome Paula thank you so much I again I actually leave our conversation actually feeling really inspired a couple of um a couple of athletes have come to mind and a couple of group of athletes come to mind that I that I'm now I'm I'm going to go back and and write up
1: excellent yeah well if you ever need a writing partner (laughs) I'm very happy to uh to collaborate so you are the I, first person I, I, I'll
0: be reaching out to. Don't you worry about that.
1: <laughs> I would be honored. It would be a pleasure.
0: <laughs> Paula, thank you so much. You know, your your knowledge and your insight and your experience is just, it's, it's like no other. And um, I'm just incredibly grateful for you offering your time um to share that with us as part of this course um and and i'll be putting you know um a lot of your literature is in our resources section so if you're listening please go to our resources section and um lots of those which you will see as one of the authors as quatrimony well this is Paula so download those and um, and take a good look into what one of our incredible um, dietetic leaders is doing in this field and um, and take that call to action and move on forward
1: thank you so much Fiona it was wonderful thank you so much Paula
0: well that's our episode of the mindful dietitian interview series for today thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening I really hope you enjoyed it Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.